Hey, we don't have any announcements, so we get to jump right in. So great to see you on the threshold of a new year. And I thought it would be appropriate to uh, share a message as we finish our Anchored series, reading through the New Testament every year and Psalms and Proverbs. Then we take two years reading through in that reading in the Old Testament. But we finished the book of Revelation, and I thought it appropriate as we look at this new year that we do a little tour guide of heaven, because some of us in this room will be here there next year, (laughs) right? So uh, without a doubt, somebody in this room, right now I'm getting a word from the Lord, I think they're right back here, no. (laughs) Rick's up here like, take me, Jesus, take me. I'm I'm ready to be out of here. But we're going to look at the tour guide of heaven. I don't have a name badge, but we're going to race through chapter 21 at 9 o'clock and chapter 22 at 11 o'clock, and then it'll be a free-for-all smorgasbord at 1 o'clock. So we're just going to have fun today looking at what is in the future. Now, there's different ways to look at the book of Revelation, but the beautiful thing is, if you're very familiar with your Bible, that everything that we lost in Genesis we gain in Revelation. It's the beginning and the end. As we see here in Genesis versus Revelation, heaven and earth are created, Genesis 1-1, and now in Revelation 21, we get a new heavens and a new earth. The sun is created in Genesis 1-16, and there is no more sun in Revelation chapter 21. The night is established in Genesis 1, and there is no more night in the book of Revelation chapter 21 or 22. There is a sea created in Genesis 1, no more sea, Revelation 21. The curse is announced in Genesis 3, there's no more more curse announced in Revelation 22. Death enters history in Genesis chapter 3, and there's no more death in Revelation chapter 21. And we are driven, Adam and Eve were driven from the tree of life in Genesis 3, and now we have access to the tree of life in Revelation 22. Sorrow and pain begin in Revelation cha- or Genesis chapter 3, and then there's no more tears and pain in Revelation 21. That's why heaven is heaven. If you've been uh, filled with sorrow in this last year, or really the devastation that we've seen in the loss of loved ones, the loss of liberty, the loss of freedom, the loss, so much loss in the last three or four years for our nation, for a people. And as long as we're fat, dumb, and happy, we really don't long for heaven. Isn't that true? You ever been so sick that you said, Jesus, take me now, right? It's like one of those things you're just so, if this is what it's gonna, Jesus, please just take me home to heaven. And heaven is a strange place because it seems like when people go to heaven, everybody gets together and cry when there should be a celebration, right? They they went to paradise and left us to pay the bills. Why are we crying, (laughs) right? We should be crying for ourselves that we miss them. This is true. We are relational beings. We miss people. And yet Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, though people don't look at it this way, that The day of death, if you know the Lord, is better than the day that you were born. Because the day you're born, all of the trials and sin and suffering are all in front of you. The day you pass away, you leave all that behind to step into glory. Heaven is either a real place to you, or it's this uh, pie-in-the-sky mythical thing that you think people tell themselves to comfort themselves Now, there's four different ways to look at the book of Revelation with many variations, and that is the allegorical view or the non-literal view. They look at the book of Revelation as basically this spiritual picture of spiritual truths and realities that it's non-literal. It's it's not really going to unfold. Then there's the preterist view, which means most of this stuff that took place in the book of Revelation took place in the first century church. Then there's a historical view that these things are played out, basically mapped out throughout history, everything that's taken place. And then there's the futuristic view, which I personally hold, which chapter 4 through 19 or 22, all these things are still in front of us. Because you cannot line historical events, you also cannot, I mean, if 20 people teach 
these various chapters with no point of reference to reality, then you're going to come up with all of these different perspectives. The futuristic view is the only one that makes good common sense of the book of Revelation from my perspective. You say, well, I differ from you. Well, you don't have a microphone, so God bless you. (laughs) Can I just give you a little adage that is true from Genesis to Revelation? When you read God's word, if the plain sense of what you're reading makes good sense, come up with no other sense lest you come up with nonsense. That makes sense? Okay. All right. So buckle your seatbelt. We're going to race through chapter 21. First, we see the new heavens and the new earth in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. So we're going to have a new atmospheric situation. Theologians are torn about whether there's a refurbishing of this heavens and earth or a brand new heavens and earth, which I personally believe that there's going to be a full eradication and a new heavens and a new earth. But the new atmosphere, as you know, 70% of our earth is covered with the ocean, the seas. Anybody watch the rogue waves that uh, hit Ventura this week and taking people out? They're just kind of doop to do and uh, wiping them out. And but that's our all of our atmosphere, the weather patterns, the storms, everything that takes place through the ocean currents, warm and cold air mixing together, creating winds and and various things. That's going to be different because when you think of the storms of life, when you think of the seas, when you think of heaven, you want all the storms and hurricanes to be behind you, right? So there's a new heavens and a new earth, and also there's no more storms coming your way. It's so refreshing just to, you know, you get through a season of your life of of peace, and then you almost have this dread, what's coming next, right? It's kind of the human experience. People that go to the doctor all the time, you're in your 70s and 80s, and all you do is you go to a friend's funeral, and you go see the doctor, and you go to a friend's funeral, and you go see a doctor, and you go, and and when you get, you know, 70 and 80-year-olds, they sit around a table, they just compare prescriptions and their prices and their ailments and how they can, what, you know, all these different things. All that stuff's going to be behind us in this new heavens and the new earth. There's going to be a new city in verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. This new city is coming down in the vision that John has, and we're going to see the dimensions of it in a few minutes. But it, it appears that it's a bride adorned. This, this dwelling place, it's a community of God's people, of believers, which is the bride of Christ that is wrapped up in this whole picture of this new city and the community of believers. You know, this day on Sunday is the only day you and I are the majority. Monday through Friday, you go to work in a hostile world towards God, and you are the minority. That's why we look forward to coming together and hanging out and worshiping the Lord and getting our eyes on the Lord and having comfort and having fellowship and communion about common values and and common things and Jesus being our Savior. Imagine heaven where that's all that it is. Right there, yeah, somebody, a child back there saying amen. Yes, I long for that day myself. There's a new intimacy in verse 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. From Adam and Eve's fall, when they separated themselves from God because of their guilt and shame, why do people not want to have anything to do with God, church, or the word of God, or Christians? Because they're guilty and ashamed deep in their souls. They're separated from God. They sense there's a nakedness about their life. They're not right with God. They have this deep, deep sense. Even those that uh, vehemently confess or profess that they don't believe in God, it's just not so. God has put eternity in their hearts. And they can lie to themselves. They can lie to the world around them. But deep inside of themselves, and there's this breach. So the new intimacy when we go to heaven is there's never going to be a barrier between us and God again. Not our own sin, not our own shame, not our own guilt. None of our own struggles 
that even now knowing Jesus, I still have this fallen nature that I wrestle with. I still have this thick dullness towards the beautiful spiritual things that God wants me to be intimate about. And so there's a new intimacy. There's also a new comfort in verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Grief is a, a heavy weight, a heavy burden upon our hearts. The thought of losing somebody, the thought I woke up this morning praying for a friend who's got a pretty scary diagnosis. And I just, what, first thing I woke up, I, I was just thinking about him and I just started praying for him. Lord, heal him. Lord, raise him up. Lord, be with him. And I texted him. I said, hey man, I woke up this morning praying for you. But that heaviness was there. I mean, I just opened my eyes. It's not like I made an appointment to think about my friend. Boom. Relationships, that's just what happens, isn't it? I can't wait for the day that I no longer go to a funeral. I no longer am next to a family as they have to unplug a family member from life support. As a preacher, you see more death, more sorrow, more funerals than anybody except a mortician. And there's a point that it's really easy to get desensitized because you just, you face it all the time. Man, to go to heaven and not have that experience anymore. What comfort. Knew everything in verse five, and the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Hey man, write it down. God's gonna make everything new. Don't you love new stuff? I love the new car smell. I love the new carpet smell. I love the new paints. I love new but after six months, nothing's new anymore. I actually have to go get an air freshener that says, new car smell, <laughs> right? Get to heaven, everything's new. There's a new finality in verse six, and he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. God is a good finisher. I've known people that are not good finishers. They love to start a lot of stuff. Ladies, please don't elbow your husband. He's the project guy. He has six projects going at once and never finishes anything. <laughs> God's a good finisher. And whatever the good work that he's begun in you and me, he's going to finish it. Isn't that good news? He's going to finish that work. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's the A and the Z in the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning of the alphabet for you. I'm the end of the alphabet I'm the beginning and the end of your life. I'm the one that saw you before you, as he told Jeremiah, before you were even formed in your mother's womb. I knew you. God knew you. Do you know David says in Psalm 139 that all my days are all written in God's book already. My life's already been written out, beginning and end, all over, because God sees this eternal perspective. There's no surprises for God. You go, well, I don't know if God's gonna bring me through this. He's going to bring you through. Because he's begun a good work and he's going to complete that good work. There's also new refreshment, it says in verse 6. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. There's a refreshment that you and I need and we get to taste. And that's, that's the earnest money. That's the down payment that the Bible says that you and I have right now. The refreshment that the Holy Spirit brings to my life today is that which is going to be magnified in quality and quantity throughout eternity. The living waters, the refreshment of fresh spring water. And this is an illustration used all the way through the Bible, especially to people that are in the Middle East where water is so precious. We had two homes when I was growing up that had springs of water where our houses were connected to springs of water, one an artesian well and the other one a spring. And I used to love to go to the open part of the spring and just drink the water out of it. And watercress would grow along the sides, which is, if you're not familiar, like a green vegetation and you can just pluck it and eat it right from the springs of water. And when I think of those things, I'm refreshed immediately when I contemplate it because of that refreshment. But there's a spiritual refreshment that we're gonna have for eternity. And even today, this is what you can experience, Jesus said, in that refreshment of his spirit. 
It's what we get to taste and see that the Lord is good for that which is going to be forever, but now we get a dose of it. Now we get a taste of it. Now we can tap into it. There's a new inheritance in verse 7. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. All who are victorious. This is the word Nikeo, or we would say Nike shoes, right? They, they, they took a good word when they chose Nike. It's pronounced in the Greek Nike, but it means to conquer, to overcome, to be victorious. And everybody that's victorious, and, and what, what does it take to have victory? Simply to believe in Jesus. What, how do we overcome this world? How are we victorious over this world? It's our faith in Jesus and his finished work that he conquered sin and death that makes us victorious. Do you feel victorious? Is there a sense in which you feel free? You've, you're no longer in the bondage of your sin because Jesus has set you free and you're no longer in the bondage of the fear of death. You're not afraid to die. Now don't get me wrong, wrong. I tell people all the time, I'm not afraid to die, but I'm not stoked about the process, right? How's it gonna be? I'd rather go, boom, I'm just done, right? Do you know that if there's a hard way to go and an easy way to go? The easy way to go for you and me is hard for everybody else. That means suddenly in my sleep, in a car wreck, boom, it's over. And all the family's like, oh no, I didn't have a chance to have that last, you know, conversation. I didn't know. I'm even yeah, but for me and you, that was, that's the way to go. Do I want the doctor to tell me you have 18 months of the most difficult time of your whole life and your children will be changing your diapers? You know what I mean? Do I want to hear that? No. But that's the easy way for our family because when you're sick for a long time, the family says goodbye over and over and over for the next nine months. So when you finally go, they're finally relieved for you that the suffering's over. Either way, we can be victorious. Either way. Because God is going to be our God and we're going to be his children. We're children of the living God. Nothing new here, a surprise in all of this in verse 8, but cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Nothing new here. You're going to hell without Jesus. Let's move on. Nothing. We have all this hope, but it dropped in the middle of that. You know, there's somebody here that, you know, you have yet to surrender your life to Jesus. You're hanging out with us. Maybe you're encouraged by the songs. Maybe you're encouraged by some friendships you have. But the only thing that is going to allow you to experience all the beauty that we're talking about is a sincere trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sins and his resurrection. Isn't it fascinating? If I was going to write a list for the people that are not in heaven, I would not start with the word coward. Would you? Why would cowards be first? Because a coward is afraid of something. In this case, a coward is afraid of trusting his life to Jesus because the world will not like it. And so they are number one on the list. If you don't have the courage to stand up for Jesus on planet Earth, in that classroom, on the ball team, wherever you are, this is the courage versus cowardice that you and I struggle with all the time. The Bible says, the fear of man is a snare, but those who trust in the Lord will be safe. Why is it I'm always concerned with what everybody thinks about me? Isn't that weird, us humans? We're preoccupied with what people. You wake up thinking, I wonder what so and so. You know, I want you to know something. Nobody's thinking about you. <laughs> that might be a heavy revy for some of us. Why is everybody? Nobody's thinking about you. But you think about yourself enough for the entire planet. <laughs> so concerned. Everybody's thinking about you. There's a new bride in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Notice this. We are the bride of Christ, the wife of the lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven. So the vision that he has is this holy city, and as we'll see in a moment, it's the architecture of it's very unique. 
And there's no reason for us to think in this new heavens and this new earth that these are not real dimensions, though they're kind of mind-blowing. Look at the new architecture of this city. Once again, the bride is a city, but it's not city. A city, a village, a community is not the buildings. It is the people in that community. We are the bride of Christ. We are the people in the community of God. God speak is not, when you guys are not here, God is not a church. It's a physical building. It doesn't become church till two or three of us show up. And now it's church, right? That's it. Where two or three are gathered in his name, then we become a church. This is nice because it keeps out the rain, it keeps out the wind, we have controlled uh, atmosphere. We love that. But the church is the people. And this community that's going to be described is a structure, but it's a structure, you remember when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going to go prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. right? And so he's preparing a place. Now he created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. He's been preparing this place for us for 2,000 years. I think it's going to be epic. Check it out. The new architecture in verse 11. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. It's the thing you discover about this new architecture. It's like this epic glass. Everything's clear and transparent so that light can radiate through it. Verse 12. The city wall was broad and high, and the 12 gates guarded by 12 angels and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. So we've got the 12 tribes. There's three gates on each side of a square or cubed structure. In verse 13, it says, there were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So on each of the 12 gates, there's a name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, north, south, east, west. And then there's 12 foundations, and on each one of the foundation stones is the names of one of the 12 apostles. Jesus told his apostles that they were going to have 12 thrones to sit on in heaven because all of them, with the exception of John, died brutal deaths, and they were uh, witnesses for the Lord. And so they get to have their name tagged on the foundation of this, the bride of Christ, this new community. But all of the gospel came through the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes. So these gates, these 12 gates, are, have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the dimensions spoken to, here, to us in verse 15. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick. This is kind of a Stanley tape measure, old school. To measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. So John is given a measuring stick. He measures this, and as he measures it, it measures 1,400 miles Long, deep, and high. It's a cube. It is the term in the Greek, it's four square. If you're familiar with the four square denomination, they take their, the name of their denomination from this passage. It's four square. It's cubed. So 1,400 miles. Basically, if you round it to uh, the United States from coast to coast is 2,800 miles. So if you take half of the United States almost to Kansas City, Missouri, almost, and from the Canadian border all the way down to the Texan border, you would have 1,400 miles. Now, you would not only have 1,400 miles square, but you would have it cubed because it would go from the surface of the earth 1,400 miles into the, this new atmosphere. It's a new atmosphere. Right now, at 100 to 200 miles, we have satellites cruising around the earth. This is 1,400 miles into the air, 1,400 miles. There could be 600,000 floors of 12-foot floors, if you think of high-rises. 
It's mind-blowing. People go, heaven's not very big. It's ginormous, okay? And this is, a, this is a community, and it's got city gates, but there's a new earth as well. So it's not singular, only this place. This is just part. This is the new bride. This is the community where all the people, get this, if you could hang out for the next week, the next month, the next year, with people that are passionate and love with Jesus and you could do life with them without the failure of their sin, it would be a glorious day, a glorious week, a glorious month. You always know in ministry life, I tell people, if you wanna get to know somebody, go on a mission trip with them. Go for two weeks, go for three weeks. Go to a foreign place where everything is awful. The water supply is awful. The, uh, the toilet facilities are awful. You can't open your mouth in a shower because you're going to get Montezuma's revenge. Everything. You don't use your toothbrush. And I mean, if you go places, you, you really get to know people. You, you see them in the morning. You see them at their worst and at their best. And you never want to talk to them again for the rest of your life. I'm just teasing. No, you see the stuff that they're made of, Right? Because all of us, on our best day, are flawed, broken individuals that need the grace of God. Any couple, I don't care how great their marriage is, they're both flawed, fallen, sinful people, now filled with the Spirit of God, that the grace of God and the goodness of God is helping them do the best they can in their marriage. But they're still, at the end of the day, a hot mess. That's the plight, and that's really the struggle, isn't it, within our own lives? Isn't it the the tension that Paul the Apostle talks about in Galatians, where the the spirit and the flesh, they, they fight against each other, they struggle against each other. Here today, this week, you've been struggling because that which you want to do, you're not doing, and that which you don't want to do, you have been doing. And you're so thankful tomorrow, New Year's, you've got a long list of New Year's resolutions that you will never fulfill. Isn't that good news? You know that 20 pounds you've been trying to lose for the last 20 years? It's still with you. Come New Year's 2025, that 20 20 pounds, like, hello. My fluffy self is still here. The difficulty for us, like we have no problem when I talk about a structure. You see this building here, right? But if I talk about the magnitude of a structure that is transparent as crystal and it's 1,400 miles tall and wide and long and it's cubed and it's actually coming down out of heaven descending to the new earth and this vision that John has. It's a real community going to be filled with real people that love God and the actual names on the foundation are the apostles. The way we got here was through the apostles' message. We have it contained in the scriptures, and the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the Savior. Yet the materials he uses to describe things are ones that we would seek to recognize because of the brilliant colors that are going to be there. It says in these new materials in verse 18, the wall was made of jasper and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. So you have a pure gold, a transparent gold, The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the ninth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the 12 gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was pure gold as clear as glass." So the building materials are fascinating, but all of these stones, there's blue and there's green, there's light green, dark green, um, all of amber, there's all of these colors, there's red and blues, so that when the transparent light, the light radiates through it, it's like this beautiful array, this manifold grace of God, this manifold colors that are there present through this transparent material and stones. There's a new access in verse 22. I saw a new temple in the city, 
or excuse me, no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Through years, brothers and sisters, there has been this longing to somehow contain God in a box. Right? So in the Old Testament, we have the tabernacle, which was a tent that God dwelt between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. That moved into the temple that uh, Solomon built and then Zerubbabel rebuilt and him and Joshua, the high priest. And, and then Herod built the temple during Jesus' day. 46 years he worked on this structure that was quite magnificent. But the reality is, is that a temple just represents people's hearts and longing to connect with God. But there was all these barriers. There was a veil between the holy of holies and the high priest. He could only go behind the holy of holies once a year. And when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom. It was shredded. It was ripped. And what it was declaring is that now the way has been, as the writer of Hebrews says, a new and living way that we have access to God. As soon as you receive the Lord, you now have access to the very heavenly realm. If I pray right now, I'm talking to the God of the universe. I'm talking to the Father in Jesus' name, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the triune God working in this beautiful mystery of fellowship and relationship with him. And that now God does not dwell in buildings. God doesn't dwell in this building. He dwells in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible describes in the New Testament, in every individual believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Spirit of God is living inside of you. That's why Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, you know, don't grieve the Spirit of God. God's Spirit lives inside of you. Can you imagine living inside another person with all of their weird thoughts, all of their weird struggles? I saw about four or five years ago this new technology because they can do this, I guess, in this experimentation stage, that they can actually wire three or four individuals together with their synapse in their brains so that they can know what each other's thinking. Would you ever want somebody to know what you are thinking? Ever? That was the scary thing about going to dinner with Jesus, right? Jesus having dinner with Simon the Pharisee, and Simon in his mind goes, wow, this woman's washing Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair, and she's kissing his feet. And in his mind, he's just sitting there across the table from Jesus thinking, man, this guy must not be a prophet, because if he was a prophet, he wouldn't let a chick like this be kissing his feet. You got to get that in the Greek, the chick thing. But, you know, it's like, he would not, he would not allow that. And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, can you imagine just hanging out with Jesus and he knows your thoughts all the time? How terrifying. I have weird thoughts that go through my brain all the time. Sometimes I scare myself, let alone scaring anybody else. What's going on? But the intimacy of the Holy Spirit moves inside of us and we can grieve the Spirit of God by our behavior. When we're lying, we're grieving God. When we're immoral, we're grieving the Spirit of God. We can lie to the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We can despise the Spirit. We can trample on the grace of God, doing despite to the Spirit of grace for those who are rejecting the Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit has chosen to live in this carcass of mine in its condition. And so God, this new intimacy, because now I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible describes you as an individual as the temple of the Holy Spirit, but it also describes us corporately as the temple of the Holy Spirit because I'm filled with the Spirit and now two or three of us get together and now 400 of us are together. Now we are the corporate temple of God. So there's two dimensions in which the scriptures describe the work of God's spirit in our life. But this new access, the temple, uh, there's no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We're with God and his presence with no barriers, no curtains, no restrictions, no struggle. But the greatest barrier between me and God is myself. It is my own struggles. It is my own dullness, my own thickness, my own... Uh, rebellious nature. It's all the things I struggle with. That's, that's what keeps me from being who I really want to be in a greater way. And he is changing me from glory to glory. And I'm not what I was five years ago, but praise God, in five years, I won't be what I am now. And I'm praying for some of you. I know specifically you're not going to be the same person either. 
that God's grace will do that work in you just like he's doing that work in me. But when we get there, all of that's gone. There's a new mystery here in verse 24. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. This has commentators somewhat baffled because it says the kings of the world will enter the city with all their glory in this heavenly scene. Does it mean past kings that have believed in the Lord and know the Lord, and not only did they have an earthly glory, but since they believed in the Lord, now they're going to enjoy the heavenly glory? Could it be past kings? There are those who believe that it's possibly uh, there's a a thousand-year reign of Christ, this millennial kingdom, and what transpires through that, that there's these individuals that uh, have great prominence that also bow their knee and they surrender to the Lord? Could it be that, as it says in chapter one, that you and I are kings and priests and somehow it's elevating all of us that we get to enjoy as kings and priests this glory, but we get to enter there. You see, you personally have a glory about you right now. You are an image bearer of the living God. Do you realize that? The, 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 The most important thing that you need to understand about yourself and your own identity. People talk about self-esteem and and all these different uh, perspectives of what your self-evaluation is. But I start from this place that I am created in the image of the living God. David says in Psalm 139 that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God has formed me. God has created me. God has. Even the person that is the pagan, they have rejected God. They're not walking with God. They still cannot escape that they are image bearer of the one that created them because he created them in his image. And what is that image? If we reduce it to three simple things, that is a person has thoughts, has emotions, and has a will. What makes you and I distinct from the animal kingdom here today? We all are mentally processing things. We have emotions that are connected to those processes. Then we have a will to make decisions. These are all non-physical things. God has thoughts. God has emotions. God has a will to make decisions. So in this process of the glory that you and I not only possess here will be amplified in the glory that we have there in our glorified bodies is that this is the struggle that you have right now is your thoughts oftentimes are out of line with God's thoughts, right? And oftentimes your emotions are even out of line with your thoughts. And then the decisions you're making are out of line with both, (laughs) right? Because that's what sin does. It inverts everything. God designed the spirit to control our thoughts, to control our emotions, to control our actions. When Adam and Eve sinned, it turned it all on its head. Now we've rejected the spirit, and now my physical appetite is running the show. And everything must line up with my physical appetites because this is what I want, what I crave, what I feel. And, oh yeah, I got these other thoughts, maybe that's not a good thing, or I have these other emotions, but what I'm gonna choose to do is now standing on its head. That's why when the gospel came to Thessalonica, those who had heard about Christianity, they said, these are those who have turned this world upside down, have come here too. That's what they say of God speak in Thousand Oaks. God speak has turned this world upside down. But the reality is God turns everything right side up. I was already upside down when Jesus found me. How about you? I was already living upside down. And so what he does is he rectifies it, and now his spirit wants to control and influence my thoughts and influence my emotions and influence my will so I choose the right thing. This is the beauty of knowing God in an intimate way. This is the beauty of being an image bearer, one that can bear the glory of God that he has bestowed on mankind, and there's going to be a greater glory when we go to heaven. But that's why we're changed from glory to glory here now while we're walking with the Lord. There's a new security protocol, so to speak. We're not going to have armed ushers. We're not going to have sheepdogs in heaven that are packing concealed weapons just to prepare you. They're trying to pass a law that all public places uh, have to put a big poster out that, you know, there's people here that have concealed carries if you're a public place. So expect a sign to come up quite quickly here. Armed and dangerous, God speak. 
in your backyard. Okay. But the new security protocols in verse 25, its gates will never be closed at the end of day because there is no night there. There's not going to be any night there. It's, it's perpetual noontime with glory and light. It's a scary thing, isn't it? You get stuck in some kind of a neighborhood and you're, you're startled that you might break down there. I mean, you, you ever been afraid for your life? You ever been in scary places? You're like, how'd I get here? My wife and I are traveling across the country and, and it was one of those situations, you're traveling across the country, so you, you need a bathroom break. And so I'm in Cleveland and I just, I don't, I just launch off of the interstate in Cleveland, Ohio. And I realize I am, once I get out, but you know, you have an urgent need. I can either die out here or make a mess in the car. Which will it be today? <laughs> Not sure what I'm going to do. I think I need to uh, basically find the bathroom. And so <laughs> my wife and I, uh, the uh, two crackers showed up to the neighborhood. And uh, the employees and everybody, I was like, the, the convenience store was like Fort Knox. They had like plexiglass and like chains and, you know, and, and I'm just in there trying to find a bathroom. And we ended up, and we startled the people that actually worked there. They just looked at us like, Run. <laughs> Run for your life. What are you doing in this neighborhood? Get out of here. You're going to die soon. And, and you realize that, that, I mean, there's places that are, that are scary. And, and it doesn't matter what the ethnic background is. Every neighborhood, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, all have scary neighborhoods where crime rules. Thugs rule. I don't know if you read the heartbreaking news this week about uh, Nigeria, but they, the, the Muslims in Nigeria have this Christmas uh, tradition where they go through and they butcher all these Christians. The Muslims go through and butcher all these Christians. So they killed like 140 Christians on Christmas Day in 20 different communities and villages. And they do it annually. It's just like, hey, you know, let's buy some presents and let's kill some Christians. And, and they've killed... Since 2009, they've killed over 50,000 Christians. 50,000 in Nigeria. And here are these people that are just, their lives are, are terrible. Imagine Christmas is coming and you're terrified by people coming to your village and, and killing you with machetes. I find that Americans with clean water Nice homes, nice neighborhoods, nice food in the cupboard, a nice 401k program. Often care very little about heaven. But having been to 17 different countries and talking to people that are living in desperate situations, those people long for heaven. Because they're not fat, dumb, and happy. They're desperate, they're hungry, they're abused, they're terrified. And they long for the day that the, all that's behind them. The difficulty for you and I is that the more comfortable you are here on this planet, the less you long for that one. Not that I, I love blessing. As a matter of fact, I want to be the president of Bless Me Club. <laughs> right? I, 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 don't like, I don't like difficulties. I don't like adversity. I don't like any of that stuff. And I think as humans, we seek to avoid those things but you know, when sickness and death comes, when adversity comes, when tyranny comes, when oppression comes, you begin to look up because your only answers are heavenward. Your only answers are heavenward. When you get to heaven, I don't want any of us in this room to be a country bumpkin when you get there and not know what to expect. It's my job to be a little tour guide for you and let you know that when we arrive there, there's going to be this new unity that we all long for in verse 26. All the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city, into this new Jerusalem, into this bride of Christ, into the harmony that we long for, all of us long for. And there's a new purity there in verse 27. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The book of life is mentioned six times 
in the book of Revelation. This is the only time it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's the registration book for heaven. There's a Lamb's Book of Life, and in Revelation chapter 20, those who stand before the great white throne judgment, first the Lamb's Book of Life is opened, and if their names are not written in that Lamb's Book of Life, that you've surrendered your life to Jesus, then it says, then the other books were opened, the volumes of the book. What, what are the other books? The other books are all of your life of sin that you will be judged for in, in heaven with no blood that washes away your sins. If this book is open in heaven, I wanted to find in it Rick Brown. Under the blood of Jesus, totally forgiven. Enter in to the joy of the Lord, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in. Let me just ask you, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? The Bible says, because God knows things before the foundations of the world, do you know that your name, if you believed in Jesus in real time, that your name was in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the earth? Your name was already in there because God already knew. It's fascinating to me the hardness of men and women's hearts that they think somehow they're going to go to this heaven without the blood of Jesus to wash them clean. Well, I'm just a good person. Really? Is that true? Or are you just a good person? No, you're a liar like me. Right? You're immoral like me. You're selfish like me. You're lost like me. Now, you might be a better version of me because I'm kind of the, you know, people when they hear my testimony, they go, oh, you needed Jesus. <laughs> I don't need you. I'm just a good person. I think good people go to heaven. Well, if good people go to heaven, then the Lord would have just sent us all a group text and said, be good, and you're going to come to heaven. He didn't say that. He said, if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you will spend eternity with me in heaven. And if not, there's another neighborhood you're going to be hanging out with. It's called hell. And God is a perfect gentleman. He has done all that he could possibly do to see you rescued, to see you delivered, to see you forgiven. You can only get to hell over Jesus' dead, buried, resurrected body as he stretches out his hands and says, I love you this much. What are you holding back from? Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Because I promise you, in this room, it might be somebody young. It's a car wreck. It's a motorcycle. Every time, you know, you're going in, you got six or seven lanes in L.A., and these motorbikes go racing by you to startle you. I mean, somebody's just got to open their, their door. Our neighbors, our son was flying jets for SkyWest. And our neighbors right below us, their son was flying jets for SkyWest. And we, my wife was talking to his mom, and I, I don't know if you met my son, and da-da-da. And then a week later, she talks to her and said, well, my son's dead. She said, well, he was going to work. He was going down to LLX, and he rode his bike, his motorcycle, and killed in an accident, 25 years old. You might be 75, you might be 25. Death is no respecter of persons when it's time to go home, it's an appointment that you will not miss. But it's an appointment you can seriously be prepared for through your faith in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that by your grace and spirit, you would prepare us for your heaven, that our names would be written in your Lamb's book of life. And Lord, today, I know that there are those who probably won't be here with us on planet Earth this time next year. This year, it's time for them to go home. And I pray, Lord, for them and their loved ones that you would prepare them, that they would know you and that they would enter in to glory with that incredible hope, that blessed hope of eternal life with you. And I pray for those who are here who have yet to surrender their hearts to you, Jesus. And I pray that today would be that day. So we're just closing in an attitude of prayer. If you want to open your heart and have Jesus be your Savior, your Lord, I just want to invite you to pray in the quietness of your seat right where you're at to open up your heart to Jesus, that you might also be ready to spend eternity in his beautiful heaven 
forever. Pray with me now. Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me, that you rose from the dead. And today I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me, Lord. Fill me with your spirit that I might walk with you until I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.